This is part three of our week 13, the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. So I have to tell you that I'm having kind of a moment of great humility right now um, and eating my words, which is something that happens to me pretty often. So I am pretty familiar with that when you speak a lot, I mean, like talk a lot, when you have a lot of words, you have to eat them, it turns out. Uh, but when we were starting the training program and Kyle was teaching, I used to give him such a hard time about too much teaching. It's too much time teaching. Your, your outlines are too long. You've got to cut it down. And then, of course, I noticed that somehow when it comes to Forge Digital Weeks, Kyle's uh, video lectures are like so much more succinct than mine. And mine seemed to go on and on. What I could have sworn would have been like a 14-minute teaching was apparently 32. So my apologies for being a bit long-winded. Um, it's the word of God. Is that a sufficient defense? We, we can never run out of words. I suppose you could also quote at me, our God is in heaven, let our words be few. But uh, one day I will be able to not only tell that, but show that for now, do as I do and do as I say, and not as I do, I suppose. Anywho, this last third part is on what Jesus taught. So what is it that he taught? Well, it was very clear. He teaches the kingdom of God. That's it, right? Well, what is the kingdom of God? What is this good news of the kingdom? Um, I think that uh, it's just really interesting that, you know, we talk a lot about being gospel-centered people, and we absolutely should be gospel-centered people. But I think when we think about being gospel-centered people, what we mean by that is, um, or what people tend to mean by that is, let's be centered around the fact that Jesus died for my sins, redeemed me from my sins. And yet, I think that um, what it really means to be gospel-centered is to be kingdom-centered, to know and practice the kingdom of God. That was Jesus's main message. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, in short, and I'll repeat this for you since I didn't put it on a slide, the kingdom of God is God's reign through his people over all creation. God's reign through his people over all creation. So Jeremy treats, um, or put it this way, I guess, um, from a book that we're reading called um, The Crucified King. The coming of God's kingdom and redemption, he defines this way. God's redemptive reign through Christ and his reconciled servant kings over the new creation. So let me say that again. God's redemptive reign through Christ and his reconciled servant kings over the new creation. So that is kind of the, the new iteration of the kingdom, the redeemed kingdom, the kingdom as we now experience it. The main point is not about a thing, but a person. The main point is that God rules. And we, as his children, to all who would believe, all who would be adopted, rule with him. The kingdom does not exist on its own. It's not like a spatial reality outside of anything else. It's not like about territories and marking things out. The kingdom is entirely predicated upon God's presence. Um, and it's also important for us to remember that the relationship between the sovereign ruler and his vice regent, so God and us, is covenantal. And God has proven that he keeps his covenants. So 
if I was going to sum up everything that Jesus taught about the kingdom, I would sum it up this way. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God is marked by sacrifice and righteousness. So the kingdom of God is marked by sacrifice and righteousness. And then last, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's upside down. It's marked by sacrifice and righteousness, and it is at hand. So what do these things mean? I'm sure you've heard um, in our teaching before and in other people's teaching this idea that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. And I think it's a term that we throw out a lot to indicate that it's more than what it seems, but we maybe sometimes can't um, define it super clearly. So I think that the clearest explanation of this upside down kingdom is what we saw in the Magnificat, this idea that um, those who are exalted will be humbled, those who are humbled will be exalted. There is um, in every realm, physical, mental, spiritual, etc., there is a reversal. And so um, the biggest picture of that, or the most clear picture of that that we get in the, you know, in the Gospels is the cross, right? So we'll ex examine that in more detail over the next two weeks. But as we've been talking today about sort of the more so the life of Jesus or the work and ministry of Jesus, the miracles are also a very clear picture of this upside down kingdom. In some ways, you might call them the first fruits of the kingdom, the very first picture of what this kingdom will be like. And as we said in part two, it will be a place where those who are hungry are filled. Those who are poor have all that they need and more. Those who are humble are exalted. But it's also a place where the reverse is true as well. And so we see that idea of this kind of reversal, those who maybe had great confidence in the kingdom and yet were mistaken. Um, Matthew 7, he says, you know, not all who called upon me, Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there is a reversal. Um, those who maybe thought they were God's people, it will turn out to not be true. So the reversal goes both ways. It's an upside down kingdom. But certainly one of the most important elements of it is this idea that um, there is more going on, the spiritual reality exceeds the physical reality. So there are many ways in which I would teach that there are physical, uh, visible reminders of a spiritual reality. Much of what goes on in our world is, is that, a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. However, there, the kingdom is kind of, um, kind of the opposite of that. There are visible, physical reminders and signs of it but it is a spirit, currently, it is a spiritual reality that we cannot see in most senses with our own eyes. And so um, it is not a political kingdom, a kingdom of nations on earth. It is a kingdom, um, a cosmological kingdom for now. So there is a kind of a visibility question as related to this upside down kingdom, right? And yet, also upside down, it is the most important kingdom, despite the fact that others don't even know that or believe that it exists or that it's real. Now, there's other components of this idea of it being upside down. Um, one of the big reversals that we see in the Gospels is the inclusion of Gentiles. That's huge. I mean, just when I was reading in Isaiah, trying to prep for kind of this lecture and pulling out different sections, you know, it talks about, or actually I think it was in Ezekiel, don't let any foreigners come in. Do not let foreigners come into the temple. Well, all of a sudden, you know, the first miracle in Matthew was a foreigner, a Gentile, a Roman centurion. 
How do you figure that one? Wait, didn't I say that right? Yes. Well, okay, not the first miracle, second. The second miracle, the leper and then the centurion. But the point being that, um, and then Jesus also says, even when he goes to Nazareth, he says, uh, you know, even the prophets of old would reach out to the Gentiles. He says, this has always been God's plan. It's always been God's plan to bring in the nations to God's people or into God's plan. And so um, what is unexpected is the way that Israel will be put to a test and they will have to choose. They do not get to just be grandfathered into being God's people. They, like everybody else, will have to choose. Do I listen to God or do I not listen to God? And so those who do will be part of God's people and those who do not will be set aside. And that is a big change um, in God's plan. So through God's people, which is in through the representative, which is Jesus, God will do what he has said that he will do. He will bless the nations. He will bless the nations through God's people. That's what he promised really to Abraham very clearly in the Mosaic covenant. Um, and then, and so on and so forth. He embodied it really in like David and Solomon when the glory of God um, in Israel was so radiant that people were coming to him to see. So through God's people represented in Jesus, God will bless the nations as he promised. But even as he blesses the nations, he will curse Israel for their rejection. And part of the blessing will be drawing them in, drawing them in to God's people themselves. So that gets to kind of a second big point about the upside down kingdom. So kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. Now, some of that is a physical, spiritual reality. Some of that is an upside down kingdom in terms of who he's including and not including, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the exclusion of Jews who do not listen. Um, the other piece of that that's upside down or a reversal, a new way of doing is that uh, the kingdom of God up to this point was a place that you were drawn into. Now the kingdom of God is a place that is sent out, that is expanded. So it was expanded by people coming to God or coming to the temple, coming to God's people. Now God's people go to the nations. So historically in the Old Testament, the people had to come to God. It was a matter of um, being a localized you know, presence of God because of the temple. So in the Old Testament, the presence of God was localized to a place, to the temple, to the Holy of Holies. And now, instead of God's presence being localized and contained, it is dispersed. It is sent out. Just as Christ was sent out, then he, or sent out from, um, he is sent by God. So too, then, are his people sent out. It is dispersed, the kingdom, as the king goes, so to the kingdom. Jesus is a sent king. We are a sent kingdom. The presence of God is no longer a place. It's a person. The presence of God is no longer a place, but it is a person. So we are not drawn in. We are sent out. Now, there is a particular difficulty in that. Now, one aspect of the presence of God being localized in one particular place was that there were lots of rules about how you approached that place, how you approached God. Holiness was required. And all of the laws really were revolved around this idea. It was a way to love God 
by demonstrating holiness before approaching, um, before approaching him, demonstrating um, worship and glory of his holiness, etc. In the Old Testament, really, the idea, at least, of all of these rules and laws was that the contagion of uncleanness and unholiness was stronger than righteous, okay? So you could be clean and holy and you could do, be, you know, you could have been following all the laws, but if you brushed past someone who was unclean, you might unknowingly bring uncleanness with you. It just took one grain of leaven, which is in the parables, to make the whole thing, you know, unclean. So uncleanness and unholiness was stronger than righteousness. But in Christ, righteousness has now won. Righteousness has the victory, the dominion, and the authority. In the Old Testament, if someone unclean touched you, you were defiled. In the New Testament, when the defiled touched Jesus, they are made clean. They are made clean. So the very first miracle in Matthew, in chapter 8, Jesus cleans a leper, cleanses a leper. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You do not touch lepers. You do not touch lepers. Not only are you afraid of the uncleanness of leprosy, it was seen as a curse, that curse could come upon you in sort of a spiritual invisible way, but very physically you were all, they were concerned that that leprosy would then, that you could get leprosy. It was a, that is a great example of a physical visible reminder of what they perceived to be a spiritual reality. Do not touch the lepers because their uncleanness, both spiritually and physically can then come upon you. What does Jesus do? He touches the lepers. He touches them. He moves toward them. He crosses that social distance and says, the righteousness in me is stronger. It has the victory. It will overcome. It will overcome. So, the localized presence of God that used to be contained in a place is now in a person. And instead of being um, contained, it is dispersed. Instead of being drawn in, we are sent out or we are drawn in to be sent out is perhaps the, the better way to describe the kingdom. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Now, this upside down kingdom of reversals is marked by a new way of living. Um, there are two really critical ways, I think anyway, that the kingdom, kingdom life, if you will, um, reinterprets the Old Testament. So very little about the kingdom of God is entirely new. I would say that instead of being new, it's a new way of seeing an old idea. So I was saying in one of the first parts that there is an element of self-help or philosophy to uh, the teachings of Jesus. And this is what I mean by that. Jesus teaches in um, his discourses about the kingdom, and we see this maybe most clearly if we had to pinpoint a spot in the Sermon on the Mount, that there is a way to have abundant life, even here and now. And it's through self-sacrificing righteousness. Self-sacrificing righteousness. So the kingdom of God is marked by sacrifice and righteousness. And I would say that God is, or Jesus is teaching us that kingdom life is marked by self-sacrificing righteousness. 
kingdom life is also the good life. He showed us that, <clears throat> but he also taught that. So he showed us self-sacrificial righteousness, of course, like culminating in the cross, but he also taught that. Now, that maybe to us is like, yeah, 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 I get it. We've heard that before. But really, in the context of the Old Testament, this is a pretty new um, sort of understanding of things. And so there, he is teaching that there is a relationship between suffering and serving. Okay, relationship between suffering and serving. But more than just kind of like a half-hidden prophetic, you know, agenda, like of something totally different and new, Jesus really is following the pattern of the Old Testament. So when he says that the Messiah should suffer, not only does this look back to Isaiah talking about the suffering servant, but the whole pattern of Israel is humiliation, exaltation, shame, glory, suffering, victory. And really go all the way back to God's very first promise of rescuer, the what we call the Proto-Evangelium in uh, Genesis 3.15. It says, he will crush the serpent. The son of the uh, offspring of the woman will crush the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. So suffering is there from the beginning. And it plays out in all the major characters you think about. Um, every covenant is bound with sacrifice. All atonement is achieved with sacrifice. Um, in fact, with the covenant, you see this idea that there's inextricably this binding through kingship specifically and sacrifice. So there is this pattern of suffering and serving, suffering and serving, and even a little bit of a substitutionary atonement that we'll um, discuss a bit more. But in Isaiah in particular, I mean, really, or here's, I guess, just one way to maybe to, to take a step back from that. Suffering and sacrifice was central to all of Israel, not just in terms of their theology, but in their spatiality. Their actual nation revolved around the temple, and the temple revolved around the altar. So if the kingdom of David was centered around an altar, then would our kingdom not also be that way? So sacrifice follows this idea of suffering and serving and sacrifice follows the large scale pattern of the Old Testament. Jesus takes that um, and he teaches that there is life to be had even in the midst of this suffering and sacrifice. So that's a slightly new take on it. We see that there is this relationship in the Old Testament, but he says much more clearly what we have not quite heard before. And most, he says, we see this most clearly um, in his teaching in the Beatitudes. So there was maybe this old idea that if you live well, then you will be blessed. And that blessing is in the form of material goods or in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's the land. Um, but that idea of live well and be blessed gets turned on its head. In the Beatitudes, it's those who are living in you know, hard external circumstances that experience the greatest internal flourishing. So live well and you'll be blessed. Instead, blessed are those who live well in the midst of suffering, persecution, sacrifice. Now, that may seem, I think, a bit like, uh, yeah, 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 we don't believe that anymore. We, you know, we don't 
we're not, we don't need to hear the Beatitudes because we know that you don't just like live well and then earn, you know, righteousness and blessings. Get it. But we do still have this idea kind of creeping in, um, maybe, hopefully, Lord willing, not into some of us, but into the church around us, that uh, moral therapeutic deism. If you, if I just live a good life, then I'll get into heaven and then that'll be fine. Here doesn't really matter. I just need to, just need to live well. And at the end of the day, then I'll get into heaven. That's all, all I need is fire insurance, right? But Jesus is saying two things, okay? He says that there's life to be had regardless of external circumstances, okay? There's life to be had regardless of external circumstances. Yes, that is in the future, and we put our hope there. But also, right here and right now, there is blessing and joy and fullness of heart and purpose and life and meaning that is available to you right now. And it is in no way predicated upon your external circumstances. It's not predicated on what's happening outside. It is an internal reality. Life is available to you. What it is predicated upon is the greatest commandment, loving God and loving others. That is the greatest self-help you will ever hear. Love God and love others. That's all that there is to it. He lays it out in more detail in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. But then he kind of sums it up in one pithy saying, this is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22. So what is the way to life? It is um, a life of sacrifice and righteousness, or better, let me sum it up by saying, love God and love others. You will find life and joy, both in the present and in the future regardless of what suffering might, or what kind of external circumstances you might be experiencing. So that is kind of the main teaching, I would say, about the character of that kingdom life. And so we're going to practice um, an others focus, loving others through sacrifice and righteousness. And he is going to characterize that um, in so many different ways. And a big component of that is going to be um, prayer and the way that we teach others or treat others preferentially, um, which gets, you know, kind of carried out maybe a bit more in the latter half of the New Testament. Kind of what does that look like? What is that righteousness? How do we um, love others? So that is kingdom life. But there's one last question that we really need to answer. When and where is the kingdom? Well, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? I have my shocker phone at hand. It's right here. Okay. So in some senses, when we say it's at hand, the kingdom of God means it's right here. But it also can mean, oh, it's at hand. It's coming. I'm at hand. It's, it's on the way. It's, it's imminent. So there is this kind of dual reality of the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's here. It's right here. There is an emphasis that there, it is here. And also an emphasis that it's imminent and it's coming. So it's, it's both here and it's coming. So there, we kind of, we also often call that the already not yet kingdom. And so that was something that um, was, I think, probably hard for uh, the disciples to wrap their, their minds around in a lot of ways. And yet Jesus seems to teach uh, just the reality of, hey, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom now. But also I am coming one day. Now, the already kingdom 
there is the, the sense that we already have the blessing of the presence of God. So this is true even before the crucifixion, right? Because Jesus is there. The presence of God is restored. The blessing, the already kingdom says that the blessing of the presence of God is restored. And along with that is the necessary forgiveness of sins. So we make the gospel entirely about this idea of the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is crucial. You cannot have the presence of God without the forgiveness of sins. But the forgiveness of sins is only a small, small part, not small, small. It is a component, a component of the bigger picture of getting to live in the presence of God. However, we, it is a critical component because we cannot live in the presence of God if we do not have the forgiveness of sins. And so we see both of those things taught very clearly in the Gospels. The already kingdom, we have the blessing of the presence of God predicated upon the necessary forgiveness of sins. And then we also have an instruction for this new way of living, which is self-sacrificial righteousness. So we're forgiven of our sins by self-sacrificial righteousness. We therefore are to carry out that same self-sacrificial righteousness. So that's kind of the already kingdom. And then there is this component of the not yet kingdom. We see in the miracles, this first fruits of what it will look like for people to be healed and to be whole, um, for all authority to be aligned with God's design, with God's plans. And we also live in a reality where we know that that has not yet happened. But Jesus says that he is coming and he will leave us with the hope that he will come again. And so Jesus very clearly teaches us that yes, on the one hand, the kingdom is here. And on the other hand, the kingdom is coming. There's a day when all will be healed. All will be whole. All brokenness and all of earth and creation will be put under his feet. And that day is not today, but it is at hand. So where then does this leave us with the kingdom? Where does this leave us after we hear this teaching? Well, we live then like people who have just received good news. We, we live like we have received good news. We go and just like the people I was talking about in the beginning, the rumors and the gospel, we go and we tell other people. We gather crowds. We do the same thing. We have heard good news and we live accordingly. We do what Jesus did. We show and we tell the kingdom. We show and we tell the kingdom. We proclaim and we perform. And we do God's word, expanding, cultivating, working, and keeping the kingdom, while we also wait on him. We do God's word while we wait on him. We have hope for this life. There is work and vocation and good things and meaningful things of cosmological significance for us to walk in right now. We have hope for this life, but a much greater hope for the next. We can have hope for this life because we know it is not all that there is. The kingdom of God is here, but it is also coming. And so we live like those who have just received good news.